the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nani Oxford. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I scared a pigeon out of its nest, and I feel bad about it. <laughs> what? Why would you do that, Nadia? That seems like a terrible thing to do. It was a total accident. Like I, I, I was going on my balcony because we had like a little bit of warm weather for a change, and there was like a, I have like a covered litter box that my cats don't use, and I was kind of like adjusting it. And I guess there's a, a, a pigeon making a nest in there and just kind of exploded out of the litter box and just this fury of feathers. And I saw it had eggs and I'm like, oh, God, what have I done? Speaking of destroying pigeons, uh, this week we'll be talking about Dragon Quest. I have no... I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to make that a segue for no apparent reason. We're also going to be talking about a game that just came out for the Nintendo 3DS. And that is The Alliance Alive, which I feel like has been flying... Majorly under the radar, maybe because some other game came out this week that's been slightly controversial and is being played by everybody. I, I'm not sure. It could be. Uh, maybe it's Nino Kuni 2. I, I don't know. But, uh, and Nadia, you're, you're still playing Nino Kuni 2, right? How far are you now? Uh, I am playing Nino Kuni 2. I think I'm about 10 hours in. I'm just kind of picking at it when I have a chance. Um, it's hard to say where I am because this, in this game, it's like there's subquests upon subquests and you lose your way very easily. Like, oh, I know what I'm doing now. I'm helping that librarian who looks like a like a, a ripoff of Baba Yuga from Spirited Away. Who Yes, wants a logistics to... quest. Yeah. And... Go do this and meet that so you can get a fucking library card, pardon my language. Yeah, get a library card so you can study about, I forget what, some sort of magic for some sort of thing to do with my, my castle. And I, nah. I, I just know she wants it uh, from a, a wyvern, a quote, a horny warny woo. And it's like, oh, Jesus, did you actually say that? Like, did the translator know what they were writing? I, I hope they know what they were writing. They were clearly having a lot of fun with the localization, as emphasized by the mascot, whose name I can't remember, who has that distinct Dragon Quest Cockney accent Oh, the lofty, yeah. He has, like, a kind of a combination between a Cockney accent and, like, a Jamaican patois going on. It was, like, mun all the time. I like that you said Jamaican patois. That's pretty good. How's it supposed to be? I'm sorry, I just... I don't know. No, it just... (laughs) Makes you sound like you really know what you're talking about when it comes to accents. Uh, it's just very, very common in Toronto, and I always liked it. Like working with uh, Jamaicans, whatever they want to curse about something, they go like, "Ah, oh, bumba clot," and uh, all this stuff. Just they had the greatest curses, and I, I picked up a few. I think having a deep knowledge of accents is very handy when it comes to playing Dragon Quest in English. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Especially English accents, right? They they do English but... accents very well, and they do Irish accents very well. Everything else is kind of. Uh, Okay, I see. I kind of see what you're getting at here. Indeed, well, you kind of, you and Katie kind of ripped a Nino Kuni two <laughs> apart on the US Gamer podcast. Too. You might be even more down on it than I am. Um, here's the thing: if I didn't like it, I wouldn't be playing it. I got better things to do with my time, but I am still playing it, and I am like always a little irritated when I want to play it, and my husband's using the TV. Um, I just feel like it has a lot of wasted storytelling potential that we went over last week, and I feel mm. like if I keep playing. That will get better, and I could be fooling myself, but at any rate, I like the monster designs, and I like the an- I like the graphics for the most part, and I like the battle system. I find them all satisfying enough that I can keep on going. Uh, I feel a little bad for Katie, though, because she was a huge fan of the first one. I didn't play the first one, and she's just like so massively disappointed in what's going on here. 
I think it's important to go into each game free of the expectations borne up from the previous game. Yeah. But but perhaps if you were a big fan of the original Nino Kuni and the and the sequel is not speaking to you, I, I I can see how that can be a total bummer. Yeah, especially since she brought up a good point about how the first game's story was very simple and very cute, but still effective, like saving a kid's dying mother, and mm. that kind of escalates a bit in Nino Kuni too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the Blood God used listeners are sick of us bashing Nino Kuni 2 for like the third week I'm in a sorry. row. I'm um, sorry. Like I said, I'm still playing it. I am enjoying it for what it is. But I don't think too hard about what it, I want it to be. I enjoy it. So. Yeah, it sure seems like a lot of people really do enjoy it. Everything yeah, I've seen about Nino Kuni 2 outside of our site has been like largely positive. I think and, there's a few people down on it, but yeah, mostly positive. Yeah. I mean, and that's fine. Yeah. Oh, great. I, I'm always happy to have another successful RPG on the PlayStation 4, especially one that beyond, short of the overworld map, which I'm, I'm sorry, it's really ugly, guys. Why are you <laughs> saying that it's cute? It's not good. Uh, aside from that, it's a, it's a lovely looking game. And I actually was pretty down with the battle system by the time I finished it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that it could have been better. I, I thought it was a little too hack and slash. But by the end, I, I had really settled into the flow of the game. Yeah. Um, and it that that's what made the the game's problems stand out to me that much more. Yeah, but and I agree with you on that. I suppose maybe once you have finished it, we'll do a spoiler filled wrap up. I know we always plan. I I know we always promise these, but it feels like something that we can actually do on this podcast. Maybe we'll even bring Schreier on. He can he can plead his case. Oh yeah, he'll he'll be pleading his case. All right, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like I said, if I didn't enjoy it to. to a, a certain degree, I wouldn't be playing it. I'd be like, screw this, I got better things I can do with my life. So I really do feel like I'm going to see this through to the end. So mm. um, yeah, we'll, we'll revisit that when the time comes. Indeed. But in the meantime, there is another RPG that just came out this week, and it came out for the Nintendo 3DS, which is still alive and kicking. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, uh, you, every time we say, yeah, man, Nintendo 3DS is dead, it has another couple of games coming out for it. Uh, I mean, heck, the last Nintendo Direct had a whole bunch of games that was announced yeah. for it, which yeah. is pretty cool. There's a Shimigami Tensei uh, a Strange Journey remake coming out for it just next month. And I, I think that's that's my personal favorite of the mainline SMT games, but uh, apropos of nothing. But yeah, no, the 3DS keeps on going. If this were if it were a Microsoft or a Sony console, it would be so dead in that by now. <laughs> it would be completely neglected. It'd be a cold, dead shell. I mean, I, I think Nintendo, they're, they're good about giving their successful systems a long tail. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. And Sony did this with the PlayStation 2 as well. Oh, the yeah. PS2 lasted forever. Yeah. My God. But uh, the they will let stuff like the Game Boy and the, and the DS and the 3DS persist forever. Mm-hmm. But if something is ready to die, like the Wii U yeah. <laughs> or the GameCube, they will just yank the life support us. It's done. Yeah. We're, we're moving on, folks. But it's over. Ironically, or interestingly, rather, uh, the thing that seems to keep Nintendo's portable systems pumping is Pokemon. Uh, from the Game Boy to the DS to the, the 3DS. Yes, it did. Uh, pretty good, good-looking game, by the way. So the Alliance Alive, it's kind of a follow-up to The Legend of Legacy, uh, which was 
uh, directed by Masataka Matsuda, who stated purpose was to recreate the magic of 90s RPGs, something that is actually relatively common, the nostalgia, the natsukashi mm. of 90s RPGs, specifically 8 to 16-bit. It's something that we've seen in Bravely Default, something that we've seen in the Tokyo RPG Factory RPGs. Uh, Legend of Legacy, not super successful, uh, in part because it. didn't have a great story. Uh, I, I recall that the difficulty was a bit of a problem. The Alliance Alive, however seems to be getting somewhat better reception it's got it's enjoying a 75 on metacritic at the Ooh, moment good. our sister site nintendo life was definitely the highest on it gave it a 90 wow that's a yeah, that's quite very impressive praise. very high praise there are 390 scores and then the rest are much more down on it i would say like shack news gave it like a 60 right and it's actually kind of hard to parse the the problems that people have with it. I suppose that maybe that it's kind of cheap looking. I don't know. Sorry. Cheap looking is a bad pejorative yeah. to use with a game because all games are expensive, but uh, it is a very basic looking game Not on the face of it. Yeah. I mean, the art's cute. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of last year's ever Oasis in terms of just the, the chibi design and that kind of thing. Yeah. That was a very cute game, but definitely more, de- definitely more detailed. Yeah. Yeah. And the Alliance Live, uh, it has some notable names attached to it. So this one, its scenario was penned by Yoshitaka Murayama, uh, the creator of one of your favorite games, Nadia. And I think should make your, should make your, your ears perk up. It's the Suikoden series. Yeah. Um, I actually, here's the, here's the thing. Suikoden 2, I think was fantastic in terms of the story. Suikoden 3, uh, I never really got into it as much, and that's when mm. that's when he departed anyway. But uh, and of course, any game beyond is just like, eh, it was it was a thing. But uh, yeah, Suikoden Two has one of the best RPG stories, as far as I'm concerned. And too bad about the translation. Maybe someday we'll get another one. Ha ha ha. No. Yeah. No, we will not. <laughs> no, Suikoden no. is dead. Oh. Uh, but we will always have Suikoden Two. Yeah, and if you but, haven't played it, go play it. Yeah, def- definitely go play it. From dig up, dig up a PS3 or a Vita or something. Can you play it on your Vita? Totally yes, play it on I your Vita. Vita. Play it on your Vita. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, Murayama pens a story that begins, according to Nintendo Life, 1,000 years prior to the events of the game, when the human world was taken over by the demon race and divided up into regions by what came to be known as the Great Barrier. And then the sky was blackened and demonkind established an oppressive government over the people. Those dicks. Freaking demons. Enf- Stopping demons. Enforcing their rule through another race called the Beast Folk. Okay, sure. Now we're uh, getting fine. we're getting places here, aren't we? Uh, you take control of Galil and Azura, two freedom fighters living in the Rain Realm, and set in search of a fabled ship that can supposedly cross between the realms. But there actually isn't really a main protagonist in the Alliance Alive. Apparently, hmm. it's a, very much an ensemble affair. You have a feisty engineer and a professor named Tiggy, or <laughs> an airheaded <laughs> daughter of demon royalty named Vivian, and it's about a forty-hour game, etc. Um. It, yeah, it looks cute. Like say, I mean, I don't. When you say Vivian, I just think of the young ones. I don't know if I'm going to alienate <laughs> any of our listeners saying that, but yeah, there's a character named Vivian who's, I, if I remember, he was kind of an airhead too. So, so the progression was designed by Kyoji Koizumi um, of the Saga games, actually. Oh. 
and there are 11 classes of weapons, and you have to use them a lot, and you're randomly unlocking arts, and sometimes and your progression is very weird, actually. It's, it's not like you're leveling up in the traditional way, like stats will mm-hmm. randomly go up, I guess, and it, it's interesting. Like, there seems to be a lot going on with this game, uh, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and I'd guarantee, oh yeah, I'll give that a try, except... God, I'm I'm so wrapped up in Nino Kuni for one thing, and also Radiant Historia, which I've really gotten into. So mm. I'd want to finish that first, and Lord knows when that's happening. It's it's hard to kind of say like uh, it's hard to get a read on how much grinding this game says. Yeah. Uh, s- some sites seem to think that felt seem to feel like they were perpetually underpowered or underleveled. Right. Nintendo Life seemed to think that they like things were more or less on the level, but. Yeah, so when I look at this game, it looks like a lovely little B-tier game, mm-hmm. uh, B-tier RPG that addresses, by and large, many of the complaints that people had about Legend of Legacy, particularly the story. And uh, with a cute little art style, kind of reminds me of Bravely Defaults. I already mentioned Ever Oasis, that kind of chibi look. Yeah. Uh, it works. Yeah. I feel like I've played Legend of... Uh, I feel like I played Legend of Legacy, but I, I just can't remember for sure one way or the other. I guess it's just one of those RPGs that gets tangled up in your head, mm. like, oh, I played this for a while, it was fun, okay, moving on to the next thing, and then it's, like, deposited somewhere in the black hole of your memory. I think my broader problem with this, maybe, is that while I love RPGs, I'm always seeking out new experiences. Maybe I'm seeking out kind of novel experiences, fresh, inventive takes on the genre. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Alliance Alive provides that for me. I, I'm not so much, I'm not so nostalgic for the past that I'm like, oh, yep, yeah. total 45 hours. This is giving me exactly what I need. Just put it right in my veins. I'm not sure that it's enough to just kind of draw me in, right? Right. Uh, I, I suppose, like, this game certainly has an audience. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but... I feel like we've kind of been there, done that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. going back to Final Fantasy Four Warriors of Light, and, and then again with Bravely Default, I feel like it's been done better elsewhere. What do you think, Nadia? Uh, I think I think you're right, uh, I, because we are seeing more and more RPGs, especially indie RPGs. I don't want to be down on them because that RPGs of any kind are hard to make, but they kind of rest on that, hey, this is really nostalgic, just like you remember from the 16-bit era. And the problem with that is... Uh, number one, RPGs in the 16-bit era were quite distinct from one another. Chrono Trigger doesn't play much like Final Fantasy VI, but they're both fantastic games. But Chrono Trigger really elevated itself above Final Fantasy by giving us a, a, a totally new idea. So going back to that that era... Uh, but it goes even further back than 16-bit RPGs a lot of the time. It, I mean, Bravely Default, in many respects, went all the way back to the 8-bit era. Yeah, and Bravely Default... Uh, had a whole system around it that was totally new, the bravely defaulting system, I guess if you want to mm-hmm. call it that. Uh, so the thing that, that makes me a little bit in, more interested in this game versus like some random indie game that's you know, banking on that nostalgia is that it has the, the writers behind it, it, does have that talent behind it. So I would be more compelled to say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a chance and see how I like it. Uh, but I, too, like new ideas. Like, I think that's why I'm kind of really getting to Radiant Historia, because I really like this time-traveling element, and not to mention the, the grid-based system, even though it's a bit slow, I find it makes battles really interesting. So, yeah, I'm like you. I'm always out for new challenges. And although I don't object to using those those visuals, mm. um, 
I want to see new ideas attached to those visuals. Don't just sell me on, hey, here's here's Chrono Trigger, except new, because then you get, I hate to say it, like, I Am Satsuna and Lost Sphere, which both kept my attention for about five minutes apiece, so. Yeah, I, I think that Alliance Alive does have new ideas, actually, mm-hmm. and I think Bravely Default has new ideas, and, and in some respects can even feel modern, but the core, um, it's very, it, it has a certain core that I don't know that I've always... I don't know that I've always been attracted to RPGs just for the sake of whatever they're trying to accomplish. I, I've, I'm sorry that I can't properly articulate it, but I suppose that one of the things that I always really enjoyed about RPGs, certainly in the 16-bit era, is that they always felt like they were at the very forefront mm-hmm. of game development. They were the most inventive games. Yeah. They were the most beautiful games. They were, yeah. They were just over-the-top amazing right right and i think to to some extent i'm still seeking that out from certainly big budget jrpgs i, I was hard on Nino kuni too but it and it's gorgeous right mm-hmm. i mean in the regular cell shaded graphics are pretty gorgeous yeah um, they are a game like persona 5 i mean it's so unfair to compare alliance alive to persona 5 they have different <laughs> yes. objectives but i'm drawn into persona 5 because once again, it feels like it's at the cutting edge yeah. in so many ways, visually, from storytelling, game development. I, I think a really good RPG can be the most forward-thinking genre right. that you're going to find anywhere, right? Yeah. Other genres take the lead from RPGs. You're right. I uh, know. So, that's true. So yeah. when, when RPGs look backward instead of forward and get uber nostalgic, uh, I just, I'm not super into it no you're absolutely right because um thinking back to the snes chrono trigger uh and um which one was it suikoden and densetsu 3 two of the best looking games on the system and both are rpgs and they were they actually literally pushed the snes to its absolute limits like they were the two games to do it so i see what you're coming at we do have some games to do that in the modern time like you mentioned uh persona 5 uh nino kuni 2 although it doesn't always successfully have do what it wants to do with his visuals it it gets quite close most of the time so yeah Mm -hmm. i would like to see uh as well as the new ideas a little bit just a little bit more not just mechanical innovation but even graphical innovation uh because there was a lot more to 16-bit rpgs than the fact that they looked 16-bit yeah i mean as you can see with the alliance alive and also uh the tokyo rpg factory games uh well, I mean, from an art standpoint, it's very practical, right? Because yeah. these games have relatively limited budgets. They're going to be selling to a fairly hardcore niche. And so they are going to look this certain way. So there's not, there's just not a lot of, I, I suppose, uh, bandwidth or, gosh, uh, latitude. That's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. Not a ton of latitude for being able to create these amazing graphics or whatever. Uh, yeah. Certainly, they would be looking a lot nicer. I'm, I'm not even entirely sure that graphics are a huge thing as long as the art's really nice. Yeah, because, I mean, like, Persona 5 works on uh, PlayStation 3 as well as PlayStation 4. It's more about how the style is versus the power. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, on that note, Nadia, what do you think... Well, we've had a whole bunch of games kind of like the Alliance Alive, that nostalgic kind of take on 8-bit or early 16-bit RPGs that are supposed to 
well, I, I think they're catering to Japanese sensibilities in a lot of respects, where they're trying to rekindle the the love that you had growing up with these mm-hmm. games, playing them on the the Nintendo or whatever. Right. But I wonder, are there different strains of JRPGs in particular that are being underserved when it comes to remaking these kinds of games? Uh, Well, we talked about this earlier a little bit, and um, I have seen the sentiment echoed many, many times over. uh, Real-time strategy games in the vein of Ogre Battle, Ogre Battle 64. Uh, We do not see those anywhere. No, I mean... Man, Ogre Battle was kind of one of a kind, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. Even Final Fantasy Tactics was not the same thing. No, absolutely not. Though, I I like Tactics Ogre and Final Fantasy Tactics, and Front Mission, frankly. And it's it's kind of a shame that we don't get more of those kind of turn-based tactics, let's level up your characters kind of games. Because, I mean, in America, or on the PC and such, XCOM is really kind of enjoyed a renaissance uh, yeah xcom 2 was outstanding final mission aside and it it's a pity i think that we haven't seen the same thing for turn-based tactics game tactics style games in japan yeah yeah um closest i can think of recently was mario and rapids <laughs> i mean that was basically xcom right it and it was made XCOM. by ubisoft as well yeah. so uh, and i mean but That's yeah good. no you're kind of right yeah, I wouldn't mind a Japanese take on XCOM. That would be, yeah, like outside of Mario, of course, not quite the same thing, but that would be really interesting because um, mm. here, here's the thing. I like dabbling in strategy games, so I'm very bad at them. Uh, I get overwhelmed very easily. So I guess if you, if you gave me something like XCOM, but wrapped it up in a prettier package because I'm not that interested in how the game looks... Yeah, I'd take a good look at it and probably die very quickly, but I'd take a good look at it. (laughs) A frequent contributor to U.S. Gamer, Doc Burford. Oh, I mean, Valkyria Chronicles is basically the Japanese XCOM. Yeah, which is Kind of. Kind of, but different, because XCOM, I think, is a lot more open-ended and a Mm -hmm. lot more focused on squad building, whereas Valkyria Chronicles is almost like puzzle solving. Yeah, it's more puzzly and more uh, character-based, too. Yes, absolutely. So I suppose Valkyria Chronicles is about the closest we've gotten to Japanese XCOM, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we know how you know how much I love Valkyria Chronicles. Yeah, so. I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, Doc Burford, regular contributor to US Gamer, was tweeting about his kind of dream game, and he was basically laying out an XCOM game that is medieval and it involves castle building and such. Oh. And I was like, I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> Listening that sounds listening. like my kind of game. That would be pretty cool. I'd like that very much. Uh, it's kind of a drag to me that Tokyo RPG Factory tried to revive Chrono Trigger, and we were talking about this on Retronauts, tried to revive the battle system of Chrono Trigger and things like that, but seemingly lot, missed a lot of the spirit and the beauty of Chrono Trigger. Yeah. And maybe also set itself up to fail by inviting comparisons to maybe the greatest JRPG ever made. Yeah, and we're talking about one-to-one comparisons like uh, like actual attack names and stuff like that. And the thing I really don't like about Tokyo RPG Factory's games, you know, kind of dull visuals aside, is how they take Chrono Trigger's battle system, but then they add a bunch of stuff to it to make it more complex, so needlessly complex, like the, the Sprite Knight stuff. I just don't care about that. I never got the hang of that. And there was no reason for it to exist when Chrono Trigger was very, very simple and easy to grasp. I wouldn't mind a game that kind of revived, I feel like we're heading into obvious territory now, 
a game that took after Suikoden in the sense that you're, recu- you're recruiting a huge number of characters mm-hmm. who can be put into various permutations and that the recruiting aspect is a huge part of the game. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun because, of course, you don't need all the characters to finish uh, Suikoden, but it's, I mean, the na- the, it's right there in the name. Part of the fun is finding those 108 stars. Yes. I, I, I would say that, w- I would go as far as to say that's the core of the game is... yeah. Yeah. Knowing, I mean, that's where the replayability lies. It ties into how the endings play out and everything. Yeah, it has that wonderful political drama. And there's a, a lot of subquests that you can only access if you have certain characters in your in your castle or in your party. Yes. Anyway, that's the Alliance Alive. Uh, you may or may not disagree with us. Uh, I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are really into RPGs. And it seems like the Alliance Alive is a perfectly lovely rpg from some one some real jrpg veterans Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so uh, perhaps it is a game that is worth your time i wish that we could give more time to it but unfortunately we at least on the site we've been busy with a lot of other games yeah Uh, but let us know if you play it and if you like it or hate it absolutely uh yeah we would love to hear your thoughts in the comments or send us an email at usgamer at usgamer.net All right, Nadia, now your story can be told. You were in Japan last month, and yes. you got to meet the man, the myth, the legend, Yuji Horii. Yes, I what did. What was that like? What uh, is he like? He is a, a, a very sort of uh, quiet, down-to-earth dude. Um, he, uh, one guy I was with said he was worried he was going to fall asleep during the interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the guy who was doing the interviewing. No, just uh, one of the guys I was with, like uh, another person from another outlet. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, but he uh, he strikes me as extremely busy, both in uh, deed and in mind. He um, it's like being in the presence of like just like a forest god, kind of, except a video game god. Uh, a forest god. A forest god. Did that I was say he forest straight god? out of Ghibli? Yeah, you totally did. <laughs> okay. Is he straight out of Ghibli now? Was he was he in Princess Mononoke? Well, he's uh, he's definitely kind of rooted to one spot. Like he is totally dedicated to Dragon Quest and all things Dragon Quest. It seems to be very. Does happy that make about that. does that make Hironobu Sakaguchi the person who's running the foundry? <laughs> oh, he's so nice for that, though. I like this comparison. Yeah. So, who's the headless wolf that bites off somebody's arm? Oh, that's uh, Namura. Uh, boom. Ah. <laughs> uh, okay, this is completely brilliant. All right. Anyway. <laughs> I'm feeling a little squirrely today. My pardon me. Did you so have yeah, you got to meet the guy who made your favorite game like of all time. That, that's no small thing. Yeah, it's actually. Um, here's the thing about me and Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest is your favorite game, right? Uh, or is ri- it Suikoden? Well, I, if you were if you were to sit me down and put a gun to my head and say like, okay, tell me your favorite game, I'd probably say Final Fantasy VI. But in terms, but of, it's a formative game. Yes, absolutely. Like there is no argument there. Uh, Dragon Quest. Something I'll actually be posting on the site later today is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, getting what it's like getting to meet him in the in the context of, of having uh, being someone who played his games in formative years because uh, Dragon Quest one two and three were all very significant in terms of me becoming a writer and I told him I got to tell him that and he seemed like pretty pretty happy to hear that. All right, that's that is really awesome. Um, I, I think that's a great feeling to be able to tell somebody who made something really great. Uh, that feeling <laughs> during GDC, 
this, this is apropos of nothing, I suppose, but I got to talk to Bill Roper, who had played a large role in the making of StarCraft. Mm-hmm. And we talked about his business venture for the first half of the interview, but the second half, I was basically like, how did you make those voices in, <laughs> in Warcraft 2? A game that I grew up playing and loved. And he was doing the voices. Uh, and nice. when he was doing the voices right there, I just, I almost died because <laughs> it was amazing. I, I, that has to be, it's going to sound pathetic. It's, it's like a top 10 career moment for me. The guy who was doing the peasant voices yeah. from Warcraft 2, among other things, was doing them right there for me. That's amazing. But yeah, that was my kind of fangirl moment through GDC. <laughs> Yeah, I know, exactly. I'm never going to forget that one. Exactly. There's but, certain things you don't forget, and that's that's one of them for me and for you, too. So give me some of the cliff notes of your discussion with Yuji Horio. Like, what really stood out with you? Uh, one thing that I wrote about on the site was um, he had never met with uh, his, uh, his actual Dragon Quest team face-to-face. That's Toriyama mm. and Sugiyama, the composer. Uh, until all together. Dra- all together until Dragon Quest XI. Like, he, he met them separately, but... Uh, but they didn't actually come together face to face until they discussed Dragon Quest Eleven. That was pretty funny. Uh, I mean, that's. I mean, I suppose that's not surprising because my understanding is that Hori has always kind of worked remotely, and Toriyama has always has kind of been a recluse, if I recall yeah, correctly. Toriyama, so. uh, I think only recently pictures of him have come out, like comparatively recently. Uh, but you're right. Um, where we were, I don't know where we were. It's not like they blindfolded us or anything, but they were. They did take us to to Yuji Hori's studio, which was actually kind of a really cool replica of like a medieval inn room. Uh, and uh, they asked us not to reveal the location of where he works, like as if I knew where the <laughs> hell we were. So, <laughs> I really want you to do a news story saying here are the exact GPS location coordinates of Yuji Hori's uh, <laughs> studio, and then just make the header image the. Uh, big old Google, Google Maps, Maps uh, yeah. with a pin and everything, and, and yeah. then translated to Japanese for that extra, <laughs> that extra zing. He wakes up one morning. People are just standing outside. Eh, Horisama. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. No, that's really. You said it was fashioned after a medieval inn. Yeah, it was like it had like cobblestones on the floor and like signs, like kind of wooden signs on the wall. And he had a replica of Lotos sword. That he let us hold. That was that was what? pretty fucking cool. I shouldn't swear, but that was, it was just an F-word cool sort of thing. Something that only a Dragon Quest fan can truly appreciate. Yeah, and actually, um, the sword has runes on it. Uh, and uh, someone who was with us asked, what do the runes mean? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the ruins. Apparently, he, um, he, of course, he writes out, like, Loto's sword in a description. Like, then he's asked, okay, what does it look like? Uh... So he just said, uh, Toriyama, please design this sword. And Toriyama's like, okay, do-do-do-do-do-do, there's your sword. So the runes mean something, but of course that's been lost to time and no one really knows now. By the way, that's how they got all of the art from Dragon Quest. Toriyama, do, do this. Something. Okay, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I love Toriyama's monster design. He's without equal as far as I'm concerned. I assume you didn't get to meet Toriyama. Oh, no, no, no. That would have been great yeah. because actually hiding. the day before I left, um, I ran and got my new glasses and my the receptionist was like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to Japan. She's like, oh my God, my son would go crazy. And she's, <laughs> she's like, why are you going? I said, uh, do you know Dragon Quest? And she's like, I don't think so. I said, do you know Dragon Ball? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we were talking a little bit about Toriyama and I said, like, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't think we're going to meet him, but 
yeah, he's pretty big. Yeah, just a little bit. So, okay, let's kind of get down to brass tacks a little bit here. Let's talk about Dragon Quest Eleven. You got to see the Western localization for the first yes. time. And you wrote an article that said that they're once again trying to appeal to Western uh, fans. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that is. Oh, God, they've been, tr- God bless their souls. They've been trying to appeal to Western fans since the very first game, which was actually heavily localized, uh, not just the text, but the graphics to make it more appealing to uh, Western audiences. If you uh, don't mind me interjecting really quickly, uh, I just read an AMA with, um, oh my gosh, the Game Master from oh, uh, Nintendo Lincoln? Power, Howard Phillips. Phillips. Thank you. Lincoln is the president. Yes. Right? Howard Phillips. Uh, I'm just in awe of how hard that man works. But he said that uh, it was um, the original president of Nintendo of America, uh, Arakawa. Arakawa, who was pushing extremely hard for Dragon Quest to become uh. a thing in America because he had seen the outrageous success of the trilogy over in Japan, but everybody was like, these, these graphics are way too simple. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to work. Uh, and I think it was Gail Tilden who wanted Lost Levels instead to be the lost game oh, in Nintendo I didn't, I Power. I not oh. oh, no, it's a fantastic AMA. You should definitely go read it. But yeah, yeah no, it's it's fabulous. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. They really wanted Dragon Quest to work in America. They wanted it so bad. Yeah, and, and here's the problem why it didn't work, at least at first, because number one, um, we were just talking about how uh, RPGs pushed system limits. Even though Dragon Quest games are huge, um, they don't look very fancy. And I think that was a big turnoff for Americans at the time, especially since there was such a gap between the Japanese release and the localizations with all four games. And four came out, like, right at the end of the NES's lifespan. So that was one problem. And Americans didn't have experience with PC-style RPGs. No, they really didn't. They were going, what the heck is this game? This is very slow and very confusing, and it's not, like, fast and exciting and action-packed like Mario. And this is a problem that, uh, frankly, that American console fans, not PC fans, console fans Mm -hmm. had for a long time. So it was unfortunate. But yeah, it really is unfortunate because one thing uh, Yuji Horii told us was how he worked hard to make sure that uh, those, not just pen and paper games, but also like wizardry, etc., how to like condense those down and make them fun, like have the, the computer do the number crunching so that the player could focus on just kind of adventuring and fighting monsters. And while that really appealed to Japan, uh, America just really didn't pick up on it, unfortunately. No, absolutely not. And, so... Uh, Oh, Looking good. at Dragon Quest XI itself, sorry, what were we going to say? I was going to say, and then with the SNES, RPGs became a little more accepted thanks to like Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, Super Mario RPG, but by that point, Square well, Enix was kind of gone, so Dragon Quest V never got localized over here. So it never really uh, yes. had a chance there. The original Enix, yes. Yes. I, slightly bigger, just just a just a smidge but yeah not still not huge by any means but no absolutely not it certainly did not hit critical mass until the playstation but yeah getting back to dragon quest 11 uh, i'm i'm curious like so the localization it seems once again has all the cockney accents and all that stuff yeah very british very british uh it's all done in-house apparently i didn't know that i thought they had a an outside house that they hired but i guess not hmm I'm not surprised because Square Enix certainly has the resources to be able to do these. I know that they outsource Nier Automata to 8.4 and that kind of thing, but right. I have to imagine that 
Yuji Horii is very protective and probably very exacting about the localization of Dragon Quest. Yeah, he actually had a comment on, uh, someone asked him, what do you think of the fact they added voices in Dragon Quest Eight? Because again, that was another localization effort to try to attract Westerners, was to add voices to the characters. And that's where that whole sort of distinctive Cockney Dragon Quest voices thing began. And he said he actually was very appreciative of it because um, he said Japanese text tends to convey a character's traits a lot more effectively than English text. So he was glad that the English uh, translation had those voices to add that bit of character that Japanese voices, uh, that, that, that Japanese text couldn't, uh, couldn't quite convey. Yes. So you got to see Dragon Quest Eleven in action, though it was an off-hands demo. Uh, no, unfortunately. What, scene, what, what sequence did, did you see, and what did you think about seeing in motion? Um, funny enough, the, the video that they released the day that the embargo was up, the minute the embargo was up, which is the kind of the opening of the game where the hero goes to meet the king, and that's more or less what they showed us uh, a little bit before, maybe a little bit after. Uh, actually, no, they stopped before. Uh, so, yeah, I got to see that in motion. Um, it was pretty cool, especially, I like what they've done with the monsters. They, uh, you can see them on field, so that's great. If you want to avoid them, you can. You can actually kick them off with your horse if you want to. You don't get experience for that, though. Uh, but they've Yeah, getting back to the Alliance Alive just for a second, I freaking hate random encounters. Oh, the do worst. they have random encounters? Yeah, and Alliance Alive has uh. random encounters. Because, of course, cause it's a classic RPG that's supposed to hit you right in the nostalgic feels. Yeah, I'm sorry. But and what's a nostalgic RPG without random encounters, a bullshit retrograde uh, mechanic that should have died years and if, years if ago? And in fact, Quest probably over, did. If Dragon Quest is over random RPGs, and everyone should be over random encounters. Sorry, I don't mean RPGs. Don't ever put random encounters in your RPGs again! <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's kind of done. Even, like, the remakes of, of classic Dragon Quest games uh, took random encounters out and replaced them with uh, think of avoidable enemies on field. And in this case, um, yeah, so you have your, your, your monsters just hanging around, but not only that, they, they kind of interact with their environments, which I think is really neat. You have, mm. like... Uh, I don't know if you know what a Draki is. It's like a little bat sort of enemy that it was sleeping in a tree upside down. You have other monsters just kind of patrolling their territory. You have mm. uh, some taking a nap. Uh, some, and of course, if you're high enough level, they're not going to mess with you unless you like really want to give them a bad day. Dragon Quest Eight had random encounters still. Uh, on the 3DS, they, they uh, replaced them with uh, actual observable enemies on the field. Wow, that's a huge change. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but you're right. Dragon Quest Eight, the original on PlayStation Two, that had that had random. So c- consequently, it didn't really have an opportunity to allow the enemies to interact with, with one another on the map. Uh, no, even even the 3DS version uh, that I just mentioned. Yes, you can see the enemies, but they don't really interact with each other. Uh, so this is actually a chance for the enemies to uh, just kind of hang out. You can see how they live. It's uh, it's pretty appealing. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a thing that we really enjoyed about Dragon Quest Monsters Joker. And yeah. I've been saying, I desperately want that in Pokemon. I think yes. that Dragon Quest and Pokemon have such wonderful, rich bestiaries that it's just a missed opportunity if you don't really fully bring them to life. And Pokemon hasn't fully done that yet. Yeah. But Dragon Quest, uh, I'm really pleased to hear that they're doing that much more with Dragon Quest Eleven. Yeah. By far, that's like one of the most, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Monster Hunter World, which has that ecosystem uh, where the enemies interact with each other. I don't know if like you're going to see like dragons fighting. That would be really cool. But Oh man, that would be awesome. <laughs> Nevertheless. And then something that's like, oh man, but then I can fight them as a final boss. That'd be cool. Bonus yeah. boss. 
Yeah, that would be that yeah. would be super cool. Uh, although Yuji Hora did mention that he's a, a big fan of Monster Hunter and he was really into World. So, well, how, what do you think of the battle system? Battle system is more or less Dragon Quest, and I think if anything's going to deter Westerners from adopting Dragon Quest, it's going to be the battle system as usual because it's still very turn-based. Um, That's fine. I think I, Dragon Quest has it. a perfect battle system. To be perfectly honest, I, I I'm I, fine with it. Some people hate it though. Yeah, I don't think I. I've I've really turned against busy work like fiddly progression systems where I have to allocate X number of BS points to everything. Yes, yes. I, I was ranting about this in MLB The Show of all games, <laughs> a game that finally got rid of that stupid progression system, and I got into a big argument with an, another baseball fan. Ooh, and he baseball. was like, "I want to allocate, I want to allocate these points to like thirty different stats." I'm like, "Half of them don't matter. Most of them, <laughs> you're like, what the heck does this do?" It's uh, annoying and irritating. It results in unbalanced characters. I'm glad it's gone. This is way more natural and way more fun. Right. And Dragon Quest has always done that. It's always been extremely hands-off with the progression, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. The battles are always really fun, frankly. Yeah. Um, sometimes you have you can put you can allocate points into skills and stuff as you change jobs and whatnot. But as for the actual battles themselves, it's all very much fight run magic item um you do have a new system called pep which works a a little bit like a limit break in that you take damage and you deal out damage and your pep goes up uh and once you have enough pep you can ally with your characters and unleash a huge attack the thing with with that is enemies can do the same to you what oh man this is this is basically the tension system just plus two Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, the tension system's a big one. I, I, one of the things I really like about Dragon Quest is that during boss battles, so much of it is about buffs and debuffs and ri- raising your tension up and everything. Yeah. And there's there's that slow buildup as you're getting everybody ready. Yes. And, then, Bam. and then it feels like everything explodes at once and the battles can be so intense in a really good Dragon Quest game, especially yes. late. Yes, yes. Um, and... and and putting together a party, forgive me, putting together a party is really cool because, well, I mean, basically it's just a mix of abilities, but it, it can be interesting to sit down and be like, okay, how do I want everything to really come together? Because everybody, right. everybody has abilities that they automatically get. You don't get to pick which people get abilities unless you do the class system that was in like Dragon Quest 3 and 6 and 9, but it was yeah, in, anyway. Was it in 8 too? I don't remember. I don't think so. No, no. no it, it wasn't. But yeah, you're right. It was a nine. Yeah. So anyway, it seems like Dragon Quest Eleven is a throwback to Dragon Quest Eight. But I mean, we've been saying forever that we basically want an HD Dragon Quest Eight. I, I don't think this is a bad thing. This is funny because I'm going, oh, I'm sick of these eight big games or these throwbacks and everything. <laughs> I, I like a game that feels like it's on the forefront. It's challenging me with new material, and now I'm like being a total hypocrite about this. But come on, this is Dragon Quest. It is Quest Dragon we're Quest, and about. also they they actually set out to. They were very clear on this. They set out to make it very much like. One, two, and three, which is why they're avoiding things like microtransactions. They just want to have a game that you can sit down and play from beginning to end like you could in the olden days. They don't even want DLC. It's just a full package. In fact, the logo for the game is a replication of the first game's logo, just the dragons reversed. I mean, you could totally have a box of loot, as it were, and lots of different costumes, DLC costumes even, and a season pass with DLC expansions coming out. And, oh, 
also, by the way, <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of ways to ruin Dragon Quest. If you, if you know, you don't have time to really play Dragon Quest, you can just spend some money and you'll level up to level 99 and then you can play this game for some reason, breaking it or something. If that even but. happened, I, I could see Hori going on a murder rampage with a knife or maybe that that replica Lotus sword he keeps. I mean, EA does it all the dang time. Uh. <laughs> MLB The Show just took out... Is, I, I know MLB The Show is a sports game, not a RPG, but MLB The Show just took out a microtransaction where you could literally go, I don't really want to play, you know, the game and level <laughs> up my character. I'm just going to spend some money and level my character up to 99 right now. Why don't you just put your money in a piggy bank? It's more effective that way. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> it's so stupid. Just play the game, man. The game that you bought. I know you don't have time, but jeez. Interesting factoid also is that uh, they didn't know if Dragon Quest XI was going to work on the Unreal Engine, so they took Dragon Quest III and remade part of the opening sequence uh, as a 3D HD game. Yes, I I think that's really cool. That's really Dragon Quest III and the Unreal Engine. Yeah, so they took the opening bit, they took, I think, the first tower, which you get to about the first 10 minutes or so, and they just kind of recreated that whole first quest where you get the thief's key. Uh, so getting back to Dragon Quest really just super quickly uh, before we move on. Dragon Quest Eleven, I, I think Dragon Quest gets a pass a little bit more in my mind because it is so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like one of its biggest selling points to me, frankly. Uh, the wonderful familiarity of its menagerie. Uh, the the really sharp battle system that has per- that has just been good for over the years. Yeah. Uh, the the pathos of its storytelling, the way that it's a heroic fairy tale, but has vignettes that just really hit you hard often. Uh, we don't know if that's going to be the case with Dragon Quest Eleven, but Dragon Quest has often been really good about that. Yeah. And uh, one thing Hori actually said was um, he likes storytelling through characters, not through uh, regular narrative. Which I found really interesting. In that respect, and and every Dragon Quest game feels like an event. So even if it's a quote-unquote throwback, like it still feels like a big, amazing, awesome game with just top-notch art, top-notch graphics, top-notch storytelling. That's what I want out of an RPG. So, all right, Nadia, there's been many complaints. There've been many complaints in the wake of this announcement that the 3DS version, (laughs) to no surprise of anybody, is not coming out in america they are not localizing it instead they are making a steam version yes and as all we all know i hate consoles and i really hate japan those are my two (laughs) least favorite things in the universe um i am here solely to talk up the pc so this is literally the greatest day of my life i have finally oversaw overseen the the end of the 3ds so we we were finally able to bury it Take that. The 3DS. Take that, Japanese RPG fans, and take that, console fans. Dead, melted pile of plastic slag now. Oh, my day has come. <laughs> At last, even Dragon Quest has succumbed and moved over to the PC. All right, but in real talk, though, uh, should have, let, let's talk about this. Uh, should they have brought it over on the 3DS? Uh, I'm actually quite surprised by the blowback for not having a 3DS version, but as we just kind of talked about, uh, the, the 3DS is far from dead. However, uh, I also think that Square Enix 
said blatantly, we want to make this game as, we want Westerners to really adopt this game, so that's why we're focusing our energies on making it, uh, making a Steam version instead of localizing the 3DS version. So I am disappointed, but I totally understand their reasons. And Square Enix does actually do really good ports of their AAA games. Yeah. Not the retro games, their AAA games. The Final Fantasy XV port on PC is apparently just aces. Yeah. So, like, just absolutely gorgeous. So, I would love to see Dragon Quest XI with those really enhanced graphics. And (laughs) I want to see the mod community go crazy on this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we just put Cloud into into Dragon Quest XI. Worlds collide! God, that would end the universe. But I want to have a counterpoint for you really quickly, Nadia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dragon Quest is best appreciated as a portable series these days because it's the kind of game that you want to play in small doses because it can be pretty intense yeah. just sitting there. It's a very slow-paced game for the most part. Maybe maybe you want to pick it up, close your 3DS, play it some places, maybe just chill out on the couch uh, listening to some music while you're grinding. I think that's a big loss. Yeah, I, I am definitely disappointed, no, no, no denying that. Although I honestly don't know if the 3DS version of the game is a different game uh, versus the the PlayStation 4 version. I will say, however, that I am disappointed that the Switch version is not coming out in Japan or America for the foreseeable future. That would have been perfect. I think it had a really distinct art look that made it look really cool. And it, Didn't the bottom screen kind of look like a classic throwback to the original Dragon Quest? It was very I cute. think that... I think Dragon Quest fans are maybe justifiably disappointed. I'm talking the hardcore ones. Exactly, yeah. And uh, Because it's two different experiences, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully one day, who knows, maybe we'll get it. No, it's never coming out here. I, I like guarantee to, I like it. To reti- I like to retain hope where I can. But no, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to snuff out all hope. It's not happening. <laughs> no hope allowed. The 3DS, the 3DS is too dead, and the Dragon Quest is too niche. Too niche. That's the problem right there, because Square Enix, they had to make a choice. Are we going to cater to the niche fans here, or are we going to really try to expand the Dragon Quest user base? And I think they, from a business standpoint, they made the right choice. I mean, I guarantee it was... Like, okay, we have budget for one or the other. Right. We can either localize the 3DS version, which admittedly has a very large install base in, in America, or we can try to reach a new audience by strongly upgrading it for the PC. Yeah. And it's just no it's no competition. No. For one thing, I think not. the Steam has a much larger user base than uh than the three DS. It's going to get it's gonna get that front page exactly. treatment on Steam. Yeah. It's such a it's such a striking looking game, and like I said in one of my uh, pieces that I wrote, uh, Akira Toriyama's style more than ever is so recognizable that even if you're not into RPGs or Dragon Quest, you're gonna look and say, "Hey, I know that style," and you're gonna be interested in what this game is selling. And frankly, Akira Toriyama's experiencing a bit of a renaissance in the wake of Dragon Ball Fighters. So and Super, so yeah, he totally is. So people seem totally down with the the Akira Toriyama look. So if you say it's Dragon Ball Fighters but an RPG, I think mm-hmm. people might be down it, might might be into it. I, I think that Dragon Quest Eleven, because as we all know, I hate consoles. I think Dragon Quest Eleven on Steam is the single biggest opportunity the series has had to grow its audience in america since the original dragon warrior yeah i agree when dragon quest uh 
So, okay, when Dragon Quest VIII came out on the PS2, the PS2 was still very much alive and kicking mm-hmm. and uh, definitely a thing in America, but they really had to push it pretty dang hard to American fans. Yes. And it, it was still kind of a, a hardcore niche thing, right? Yeah. And and I think it did actually grow the audience over here for the most part. It has been growing, albeit slowly. Like, uh, I think I looked yeah. it up and Dragon Quest Nine for the DS actually did. It did a million in, in America and yeah. Europe combined. And that's not bad at all. Oh, Nintendo really pushed it pretty they pushed hard, it hard on the 3DS. <laughs> God bless. Uh, or the, the original DS. DS. And Dragon Quest Nine was a great game. Yeah, let's, I really let's enjoyed it. Let's be perfectly honest. I, I loved Dragon Quest Nine. I, I think it's my second favorite game in the series, mm-hmm. uh, beyond Dragon Quest Five. And people, I, I know DQ fans are going to look at me crazy, but I just, I thought it was such a brilliant. I, I loved creating my own characters. I loved playing with my friends. We do not have enough of those co-op type yeah, RPGs. Absolutely. And talking about the, like the thread of this entire episode, I think that I that was a new experience for me. I, I, just being able to download those maps, that was cool. Yeah, and it, I, it had the best post-game of any of the Dragon Quest games by far. For sure. For sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was just so much fun finding the, the map with the all of the metal slimes, was it? Oh, or the God, treasure yes. slimes? Yes. Getting outrageous amounts of money and experience. Oh, so good. But I... Uh, yeah, no, Dragon Quest Nine was super duper good, and I really hope that they do something similar with the Switch version. I'm not saying completely changing it, but I hope maybe having some kind of element that ties into the local couch co-op and the portability. Yeah, absolutely. I think someone asked, actually, uh, do you have any plans for the, any changes coming for the Switch version? And they, they were mum on that, so... Of course they were, of but uh, uh, it's a, unfortunately, the Switch version is quote-unquote a long way off, yeah. so don't expect it anytime soon. Yeah, I guess I'll Maybe replay it again on the Switch, like I did with Dragon Quest Builders. I wonder if Dragon Quest Eleven was just under uh, under development for a long time, and then they suddenly said, oh, we can pivot to the Switch? Yeah. Okay, we can do that, but it's never a matter of just a simple port. I, no. I think they really had to optimize it and make it perfect, because Dragon Quest, in so many ways, is a prestige series, mm-hmm. and even... even Dragon Quest Frickin' Heroes, <laughs> a frickin' Musou game, was probably the best Musou game ever made. Yeah, it was great. Uh, this is just my opinion. People might say the Zelda Musou game yeah, is Hyrule it's, Warriors it's close, is the best. But but I, I think I yeah. prefer Dragon Warrior. I, I think Dragon Quest Warriors has gets the advantage in this one. So I think they really want to do it right. And yeah, more power to them. I'll totally play Dragon Quest Eleven when it eventually comes out. I'm sure plenty of people will miss it the first time around. But. Yeah, absolutely. it's always the case. All right, uh, but optimism about Dragon Quest Eleven. I think we both have it, and it's so great to have it coming out this fall. I, yeah, I think I'm happy. It's yeah, no, I, it's all signs are also pointing to Kingdom Hearts three coming out this fall. So I think we're gonna have a really strong one-two punch of JRPGs this fall in the Christmas season. Yeah, good stuff, especially since well, I guess I'll have to try Kingdom Hearts three, but I'll probably be lost real fast. <laughs> eh, I'm not going to play Kingdom Hearts. Or, no, I'm going to. No, I'm going to play it. I'm sure, I, we'll, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about it at least. Or I'll probably, we'll probably give it to Katie. Oh, Katie will love then, it. No, actually, she'll hate it. But no, she'll hate it. <laughs> Poor Katie. She'll come out and be like, "This is garbage." <laughs> if I know if this is the Katie that I know and love, she will annihilate it. Yes, you should have her on the show when she's ready. All 
All right, Nadia, as usual, we talked about uh, lots of stuff last week. Uh, we were talking about Zonky Zero. We were talking about Bard's Tale 4, GDC stuff, Ultima Online War Stories. And we were also talking about your thoughts on Nino Kuti 2. Here are what the readers are saying. Nova Cav says, Zonky sounds great. Spike Shunsoft has become one of my favorite devs, honestly. Was bummed we didn't learn about Project P-Sync at GDC, but at least Uchi Koshi tweeted about it. Flipsider99 says, I love everything about that Zonky Zero trailer. Spike Chunsoft Zon- really know how to write stories and hook you with interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. The characters each representing seven deadly sins, that they're the last eight people on Earth, and there's some sort of thing where they keep being reborn. All sounds really interesting. I agree, Nani. It does yeah. sound like a pretty interesting RPG. It yeah. might be one of those uh, really, really flying under the radar. Yeah, I'll definitely be playing it because uh, I missed out on... Uh, is it Danganronpa that they do also? Yes, yeah, Danganronpa. Because number three came out, and I was like, oh, I'd really like to play this, but it seems like the kind of series you have to get into from the, the ground floor. So this will be a fresh start. Yes. Step Out says, I'm excited to see how Bard's Tale 4 turns out, as I definitely wish there were more modern first-person party-based RPGs. I like the top-down perspective as well, and there are pros and cons to both, but I find the first-person perspective the most immersive when it comes to exploration. In a perfect world, Bard's Tale 11... Sorry, Bart's Tale 4 will sell enough <laughs> copies to make Ubisoft take notice and throw some decent money at my Magic 11. Blood God be praised. Rider Kicker says, I have to, I've got to play Oreshka on my Vita. I paid $20 for it, but have spent only 10 minutes on it. Zonky sounds a lot like it. Jeez, Redwall indeed has a problem with characters being one-dimensional as they can only be evil if you were born into that species. Except Outcast of Redwall. Outcast of Redwall had the weasel. Uh, I can't remember his Not, name. No, it was a ferret, oh, Nadia. Pardon. A it ferret. <laughs> and he, uh, but even that was like, he was a brat all the time. Total brat. Totally, totally awful. Couldn't and speak English like the Queen's English like he should have. Kills somebody, I think. Was, uh, that's right, he did. Uh, yep. But there's also the Tagarung which I never finished because I just got bored with it. But uh, that was also a story about an otter that grew up with weasels. Yeah, it was... Oh, really? I didn't know. That's kind that of an interesting idea. one of the last idea. books uh, Jacques wrote. Uh, I think that one of the problems was that it was always meant to be this heroic series. It's yeah. like super heroic series. And and maybe the rats were kind of taking the place of the orcs from... Oh, Absolutely. And it got to be a bit of a problem when you're like when the animal species started becoming always chaotic evil and started kind of inviting comparisons to racial groups. Yeah, just a, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that it it stepped outside of its boundaries a little bit too much. But the original Redwall is phenomenal. God, you got to read that book. Oh yeah, I, I mean I've read it, but uh, the series creators is it Brian Jacques or Brian Jacques. Brian Jakes. Brian Jakes is right. It has a weird. Yes. Weird I met him, actually. It. Did you really? Does, is he really a jerk? Because he came across as a jerk no. in an interview I wrote. He said that people who write on computers aren't real writers, and I hate that shit so much. Well, we're not, but <laughs> yeah. I'll have you know I'm totally not a real writer. Uh, no, he uh, he had tendonitis, but he told really great stories about you know being a lorry driver in England and everything. He, he was doing a reading oh, from okay. his book that was ter- set tertiary to Redwall, actually, and then... He did a book signing, and I brought my special hardcover illustrated version of Redwall to be signed. But alas, I had to go to work. I could not stand in line to get my book signed. And he was only doing limited signings anyway because of his tendonitis. But after that, he died, which was real sad. But I did get to meet the man, and uh, that was pretty awesome. That was pretty awesome. I got to Who did you get to meet? Peter Beagle. Who's that? The Last Unicorn. Oh, really neat. That was actually one of the nicest things that ever happened to me because that was at Otakon 2000-something or other, and nobody knew he was there. Just, he was like hiding, he was hidden somewhere behind the Gaia online booth. So (laughs) my friend and I, 
he had no lineup. So we just went over there and we talked to him for ages about writing and, and everything. And he cool. was just, he was just super incredibly nice. Met Scotty once. Oh, is that, who's that? Jimmy Dewan, who, oh, that's yeah, funny. he's from your, it's from, he's from your land. Yeah. He's yeah. one of your people. He's a Canadian. Yeah. Uh, fought in World War II and everything. Had his, I think he had one of his fingers shot off. But <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I went to a Star Trek exhibition at the Mall of America in like 1990, I want to say like 1996 or 95 or something like that. It was really neat. They had a reproduction of the Enterprise Bridge and they had people dressed up like Klingons till they got a picture of my sister next to a Klingon. Oh, uh, they had demos of all the new Star Trek games. There was Jimmy Dewan himself right up there taking uh, autographs and everything. I so I got his autograph. Controls. I got to shake his hand. Did, uh, I, so uh, I got... did I tell you the story about the time William Shatner was in my backyard? What? I guess not. <laughs> no? Oh, okay. Uh, this is a quick one. So was worry. this during his camping phase when no. he was like a vagabond? Okay, we didn't own this property, obviously. This was uh, our house at the time backed out onto, of course, a Is this hockey. a Robert Downey Jr. kind of thing? <laughs> no, no, not that bad, thankfully. Our house backed out onto a arena, a hockey arena, of course, uh, parking lot. And my mom looks out the window one day and she's like, is that William Shatner? Like, in the parking lot. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And yeah, it was William Shatner sitting there directing. He was doing Tech War, if you remember Tech War. <laughs> so Of course he was. So we went over, we met him, we're like, hi, can we have an autograph? He's like, sure, do you want to watch this film? I'm like, yeah. So I actually sat there for part of Tech War, the pilot, and watched them film the bit that's in the hockey rink. If you, wa- if you rewatch the, the, the first pilot, it's on, it's on YouTube. I was there for that part where there's an android throwing a hockey stick at some idiot. There's my story. Uh, <laughs> And on that note, Axel Blood out of this US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, subscribe to us. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love hearing from our fans. Uh, we love hearing nice comments. So if you have them, drop them on. They keep us going. They give us life. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at D underscore Catbot. Nadia at Nadia Oxford. And there's a, a lot of great RPG-related stuff uh, going up on the site um, as of this recording, uh, Katie is just about to post a Taro Yoko uh, near Automata postmortem full of really great mm-hmm. stories. Uh, one of them was like how near Automata was almost canceled. Oh dear, because, that would have been a mistake. Because Taro Yoko couldn't align his schedule with Platinum Games, which is just the most goddamn Taro Yoko story I've ever, ever <laughs> dang heard. It, I strongly encourage you to go check it out. She asked a lot of really phenomenal questions, and they just they really break down the best moments. So if you played and enjoyed Nier Automata, go check it out. And uh, as of this recording, probably tomorrow, I, I, I would say, uh, Nadia will also be posting her full story of an interview of her encounter with Yuji Hori. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of really neat RPG-related stuff going up on the site, yes. as always. So, And maybe maybe at some point I will find time just really sit down, crack my 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 nails, or not my thing, my my knuckles, not my nails, <laughs> and do a really big breakdown of Nuni Kuniti. I've I've already done it. Yeah, but I I just want to talk about. I really want to talk about the end. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not there. I yet. gotta talk about the end. I gotta get it off my chest. There's a lot to talk about there. So, oh, and last note, I'm gonna be at Pax East uh, next week. And at the 
in Boston and I'm going to be yeah. checking out a whole bunch of games. Um, I'm planning on going to a handful of panels. Actually, I'm going to be at the Heroes of the Storm panel. Uh, I, I have to look at a, a few others. I, I'm going to be there for work. I, I'm planning on going to a Final Fantasy 14 writing panel, that kind of oh, thing. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so uh, if you see me, maybe I'll be wearing an orange Retronaut shirt. Maybe I'll be wearing something else. Uh, yeah, flag me down, say hi. Yeah. And I, I love meeting the fans. Uh, I would love to love to talk with you. I, I don't think we're going to be doing any meetups or anything, but I'll be around. And uh, I, I would love to see you. So, yeah, if you're Boston, PAX East, come say hi. Don't worry. The schedule for the podcast won't be affected that much uh, i think it'll just be going up a little later on monday than mm-hmm. usual okay all right for nadia and myself thanks for listening to this very energetic episode of acts of the blog on and for nadia and myself till then happy adventuring <laughs>